0: I started working so nebulosity and phd both started not too long from each other um but nebulosity had really started i I wanted to be able to do some of these some of these things and be able to do the processing on you know on my end here and not have to fork out you know a ton of cash for for some software i mean i had a young family and it was a hobby and, and that kind of thing basic idea was I went I'd taken a picture I'm like okay here's my basic framing I like it my focus is pretty good that's the framing okay everything is great cool right okay wait a minute let let, let me go let me let me double check I kind of be OCD let me double check that focus there let me click on that little thing focus on that star yeah that's good that's good right okay perfect now capture the whole series oh shoot I gotta run inside now I ran inside Little did I know I hadn't unchecked then the box of, oh, only capture just this little tiny star for the focusing. So it was like, the software made it so I took an entire night's worth of data of just one little frame and focus kind of star. And it's like, I'm sorry, you know, that's a massive software fail. Yeah, I I had a brain lapse, but I blame the software for that.
1: That was Craig Stark, a neuroscientist and medical imager who turned his training towards astro-imaging. He's the developer of Nebulosity and PhD, two astronomy software packages that were made with simplicity in mind to avoid the mistakes we all make. Dustin sat down with him to talk neuroscience, astrophotography, processing, and more. So, let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories.
2: Oh, nice. Yeah, it looks like you've been doing a lot of this kind of stuff. I saw you were on MindField.
0: Yeah, we had a really a really neat experience with them a couple of years ago. Um, they picked up some of our research on uh, how memory works and what we may be able to do to actually improve our memory and uh, how video games may actually be a neat way that we could do that. And so uh, we got to spend, oh, I don't know, a grand total, at least a half a dozen days or so with the crew there, And uh, it was a really, really neat experience. Yeah, you built a huge maze. You put them through, right? Like a yeah, it was pretty awesome. I mean, the my my lab we try to figure out how memory works in the brain, how it changes with age, what we could do about it, and they were interested in that. But then wanted to try to see is there anything that we could do to have some a nice visual. I mean, it's one thing to have Michael sit down and just do some you know memory tests on the computer. That doesn't make for good TV. And so they built this 60 foot by 60 foot maze and had drones up there to be able to then go and see exactly where he was going. He had his uh, lookalikes to then be able to give us some controls. But then it was really pretty cool because after they got done filming, we had said to them, it's like, could could we use the maze? And they're like, look, you know, we're going to have to take it down as soon as we fully wrap. But, you know, at the end of the day, if there's still time, sure, you can use it. And so we actually ran an entire experiment in about an hour or so there by setting people up with laptops and a copy of the virtual maze rendered on the laptop, people out there, you know, for real. And then you would do something like learn where everything was in the maze and the maze's layout on, you know, a on a computer, as if you're playing a video game and then go and test in it for real, or learn the real one and test the virtual one, or you know, learn and test in the real to see really how well does the information transfer between the real and the virtual there.
2: So you you took a very well respected man and made him an actual rat in a maze. Exactly. So I respect that. Yeah. <laughs> and he
0: is an he is a really, really awesome science communicator.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Among the best, I I think for sure. So it's not your day job then to be making programs like PhD and Nebulosity. Your day job is to do this kind of fun stuff
0: yeah exactly. by by day i'm a I'm a neuroscientist, and what I spend a lot of my time doing, and this is actually where some of the hook came in uh, when I started writing the software for this, is it's it's neuroimaging. So I stick people inside of MRI scanners, I take lots of pictures of their brains. and each one of these pictures, you know, it's got some faint little noisy bit of the signal. And people move as they're lying inside there, so you have to do things like image registration and alignment, and you need to be able to take a whole bunch of these and effectively stack them on top of each other to then go be able to pull out that actual signal that is the activity in their brain. And it's the same darn set of problems. In fact, way way back when um, when I first started getting back into astronomy after you know after being into it as as a kid. You know, folks had figured out this is back in the days of Steve Chambers and modifying long exposure webcams. People had figured out how to go and hack a little Philips webcam to, you know, try to act like a real camera and take, you know, exposures that were 10, 30 seconds long or something like that. And so I had, you know, some electronics background and stuff. And so I decided, all right, I'm going to do that. And, and I hack it and and I start taking the pictures. And I'm like, holy cow, you are kidding me. I'm actually seeing stuff in this. It was awesome. But then the question was, what do I do with these images? You know, um, I got a whole bunch of like, you know, TIFF images or something like that. And each one is something, but yeah, you know, you got to do something to stack them on top of each other. And how do you do that? All right. Well, things like Maxim had early versions out there and that was expensive. And I realized that all of the stuff that I use actually for, analysis of brain images has the same kinds of things. So I'm like, I could just push it through there. Um, you know, I tried that as a quick demo kind of thing, but then soon after that said, it's like, all right, I could just write some software to then go and try to actually do that. So that's kind of how it all started. So that's how nebulosity started. Yeah. Yeah. So I started working. So nebulosity and PhD both started not too long from each other. Um, but Nebulosity had really started. I, I wanted to be able to do some of these some of these things and be able to do the processing on you know on my end here, and not have to fork out you know a ton of cash for for some software. I mean, I had a young family and it was a hobby and and that kind of thing. Right. And and so I started to do that, and then actually um, there was this company SAC Imaging, and I had a lot that I was doing with them in the in the early days. They made some inexpensive cameras um, that were then better than my hacked webcam. <laughs> yeah. and but hey look, you know I, I got to see a galaxy pop up <laughs> on my screen and it's like, holy cow, you're kidding me. that was that yeah. was an awesome feeling. yeah but uh, but so in any case, I started then um, you know looking at I was I was working on some of the software there and the folks at at Sac were saying, could you build us something to be a sort of a simple capture application for our camera? the uh the sac ten and i said all right as as long as it's just a a simple basic kind of thing just for the capture that'll be fine um and that's then actually what what truly morphed into uh into nebulosity that's what i love about nebulosity
2: though and you and i have talked about this several times but i feel like it it's the simplicity that makes it such a great program and i still use nebulosity all the time i mean i've been imaging now four five five years i guess Mm -hmm. and i still tell people about it all the time i think everybody that's in imaging has used phd at some point yeah if it's not if it's not their main guiding it's still my main guiding program but um it's just the simplicity of these programs that you've made and how it takes all the guesswork out it's just there's no fluff there's nothing there to be confusing it's just push this button and it will do exactly what it says it's supposed to do. And that's it. Right. And
0: exactly. And try to get it so that, I mean, look, when we're doing this as a hobby, we're often not at our best. You know, some people look, they have permanent setups and that's awesome and everything is configured and that's great. Uh, That's not the way a lot of us roll. You know, mm-hmm. we'll truck our stuff out, whether it's just to the backyard or to some deep sky site. And by the time you get set up, it's already dark and you're like, shoot, I've got to align, I've got to do this and this and this. And by the time you start imaging, I don't know, man, half the time I'm just I'm tired, you know, and yeah, yeah. my, you know, I, I'm a neuroscientist. But really, my my Ph.D. and everything is in experimental psychology and it's trying to figure out how do we think how do we process information and we know that at like 2am you're not at your sharpest so so i mean why should it ever be the case i mean this is one of the things that really got me and i was i was well into nebulosity and phd at the time and i was looking at some other software and everything out there and i i took pictures all night in the end of one star and it happened because the software design that I was I was having to use because I didn't support the camera yet and, and nebulosity was was bad. Basic idea was I when I'd taken a picture, I'm like, okay, here's my basic framing. I like it. My focus is pretty good. That's the framing. Okay, everything is great. Cool. Right? Yeah. Okay, wait a minute. Let, let, let me go, let me let me double check. I kind of be OCD. Let me double check that focus mm-hmm. there. Let me click on that little thing, focus on that star. Yeah, that's good. That's good, right? Okay, perfect. Now capture the whole series. Oh, shoot i gotta run inside now i ran inside little did i know i hadn't unchecked then the box of oh only capture just this little tiny star for the focusing so it was like <laughs> the software made it so i took an entire night's worth of data of just one little frame and focus kind of star and it's like <laughs> i'm sorry you know that's a massive software fail yeah i i had a brain lapse but i blame the software for that
2: yeah. But that's the thing is it shouldn't be the type of thing that's even there. Like
0: why? Exactly. Why, why? is that even there? <laughs> oh my God, there was another one. Okay. I got to share this other one with you. And it was the same piece of software and I, I, I won't name it. I don't even know if it's like, you know, functional anymore, but sure. um, the other then great thing on this was I was having all sorts of problems with this camera, getting it to actually work. And sometimes it would, and sometimes it wouldn't. So I already knew that sometimes it would kind of be a little flaky and everything. And then I say, okay, here it is. And it would take calibration frames, dark frames, and like auto-subtract them for you and everything. And then I said, okay, well, now let me go and do my frame and focusing. Let me, let me figure out where that galaxy is in center it and get it just the way i like. And it kept turning up blank images, blank images, blank images. I'm like, where the heck is this? I mean, come on, I should at least see some stars. Where is this? And I spent, I swear, I spent like 40 minutes trying to diagnose what in the heck is, what has gone wrong? And what it turned out was that, well, in a prior screen, I told it to enable the like shutter to keep it closed to take dark frames. And like, why in your focusing routine would you <laughs> ever have it designed to have have the shutter closed? You're focusing. You're supposed to focus on a star, not a hot pixel. What are you doing? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Again, just, just in just case, don't, just don't <laughs> do that. And realize that the person sitting at that keyboard is tired. And, yeah. and it's, it's going to be, yeah. So
2: you have no, mu- you have no idea how much you're doing for people's self-esteem right now. <laughs> Just saying like, like even the neuroscientists can't yeah, even figure neurosci- out,
0: even the guy who wrote the darn <laughs> software and everything. He's like, Oh, seriously, are you kidding me? Did I take an entire, entire night of, Yeah. Well, hey, I've got a really great dark frame library, you know? So yeah. I'm right.
2: Exactly, yeah. but but I mean, half of the stuff out there is like that, and that's why I, know. I I've used pretty much everything, but I always come back to Nebulosity. And when I get people started, one hundred percent of the time, I tell them start with this. And there's there's a couple reasons. Not just the simplicity, but also the fact that you took the time to make a quality fits viewer, yeah. right? Like you you can see the image, and that's the fun part of the hobby. And I think maybe that's what it is. Is it's like you're saying. When this is just a hobby, it's different if you're a professional and you're just going after data and the data Mm -hmm. has no emotional value to you. It's not a pretty picture for you. It's not art. It's not any of that. It's just data. But if this is a hobby and it's there to be fun, you're not going out there to not see something. You know, you want to see what am I getting? Like that's the that's the exciting part. And some of the FITS viewers that are out there, man, it's like looking at those old calculator screens where they tried to be clever.
0: Oh, trust me, I know. (laughs) <laughs>
2: yeah, you can't even tell if it's a star or right. if you just fucked up your calculator. You know, exactly. like you don't know what's going on, and so I just I can't have fun with that because there's no reward. You exactly. did a third, you know, a thirty minute
0: exposure, but there's no reward for it. And this is this is a hobby. This is a hobby for us all. Even one of my favorite pictures that ever was processed in Nebulosity, uh, it came out of NASA, but it was done as a hobby so at the very least and we also know that it's like look you got that free night and the moon wasn't around and the sky was stable and clear and you could go you could get that data make sure you get the data you know make sure you get something good and don't have that be an absolute like nightmare and everything to do Get that later on when you're back at your house and you've got your cup of coffee and you're warm and you're not getting eaten alive by mosquitoes or whatever kind of thing and all that. Fine. If some software crashes on you or it's tough to figure out exactly how to figure out how am I going to get this Lucy Richardson deconvolution to give me the best looking image, great. Whatever. You have all the time in the world. Go do it then. Yeah. But get your data and don't mess with it. Have it be nice and clean and simple to actually. So I mean, when people ask me, do I use Nebula? Of course I use Nebulosity. Every single thing I've ever captured that I've put up for anything has been captured in there. Is it the only thing I use for image processing? No, there are some other really great things out there that have some cool features and some neat processing. Great, use that. So that was another thing I really wanted to bake into Neb from the start was the ability to go back and forth between other packages to be able to say, hey, You know let's let's have a really good fits kind of setup let's have uncompressed 16-bit other kinds of images so that if you want to hop into another package go do something over there for a little bit and then bring it back to go do something else cool i do that in my science all the time Mm -hmm. i use half a dozen different packages for looking at the brain data
2: yeah. And it, it makes a lot of sense. I think that, um, you know, something that nebulosity does very well is that it gets you from start to finish and it can do everything necessary, but it doesn't offer, it doesn't give people this like analysis paralysis, kind of like buried in the exactly. options thing. It's like, you can process your image fully in nebulosity. If you choose to, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't mean it's going to give you every offering that something like PixInsight insight does or Photoshop exactly. But it gives you enough and it offers some things that those programs don't. One one tool I absolutely love in Nebulosity is, like kudos for this one, is the um, Titan Star Edges option mm-hmm. that you have because, I mean, it's so, especially if you're shooting luminance data, it, yeah. it, it's a way of sharpening or at least giving an apparent sharpness to those images that is like, I mean, it looks... Twice as sharp as it did before, just by pulling in the edges of those stars. And I've never mm-hmm. seen that tool in
0: another program work so well. Exactly. And then that's also then why, as I say, I go back and forth because there are a couple things that it's like, all right, I haven't coded this up, but it works really well. Yeah, but heaven help me. I wouldn't want to do everything start to finish in some of the other packages, no like even like the aligning and combining kind of thing yeah i know i'm one of these days i'm going to add in some stuff to make uh to automate the process a little bit more but i like looking at each frame as i go by and saying all right shoot wait a minute you know what actually this frame totally i didn't see that and yeah this one's lame skip over it so i kind of like having that i mean i'm a scientist by day you know look at your raw data um so I could sort of force you to do that in uh, in the way you actually do the aligning and everything. But in any case, there are some things in there. I mean, heaven help you if you wanted to do stacking and aligning in Photoshop. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Go take it, these 50 images and try setting like, you know, overlay values and transparencies on each one to magic. No, I'm sorry.
2: Um yeah. so yeah, but but in any case. If you're willing to commit, you know, a solid decade per image. You know, yeah. photo, Photoshop's a great tool for stacking. But <laughs> But otherwise, you know, it just, I, you know, and I agree with you. I think forcing you to look at each picture you took, you know, especially if you're doing narrow band, you've got some, you've got some time invested in each one of those photos. Yeah. And so being able to just look at it at a glance and just click the same star on each photo for your alignment, I think really does kind of, uh, it eliminates part of the error that gets introduced with a lot of the pre-processing.
0: Exactly. And so this is, again, this is where it's like, the fact that I'm a scientist by day and what I do effectively is image processing. I mean, all of this is just data analysis. It's just crunching some numbers using some you know algorithms, but it's a garbage in, garbage out. And if you just throw it at a black box and when that black box works well and your data going in are nice and clean, awesome. It's really, really easy and it's great. One little button, boom, hey, here's my image. But then again, you also probably didn't feel like you did a whole heck of a lot because you just pressed a button and got an image and you could have just gone to like you know, the Hubble site and said, press a button. And Hey, there's an image. Um, (laughs) but anyway, so if you, you know, if you actually, if it's not all perfect, well, you can spot that pretty quickly yourself. So forcing you to go through and make sure, Oh, wait a minute, this one's got a problem. Um, you know, it's in some ways I, I stick a couple things in there as, as just sort of vestiges of the fact that by day, I'm a scientist and you really should pay attention to your raw data. And so, yeah. I mean, so for example, like auto dark frame subtraction. People have asked me to stick that in there. I'm like, it would be trivial for me to stick in in five minutes. I could add that feature in there. I'm not going to. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really just because it's like, look, well, that dark frame that you're subtracting, um, that's that's altering your raw raw data. You know, uh, I, I'm never going to have it be the case that you you would do something that would ever lose the raw data I mean so you can do auto dark frame subtraction kind of stuff yeah but then you automatically save both versions of it and that kind of thing so yeah
2: yeah which makes sense and you want to be able to go back if you need to right exactly and, and, and pull that stuff but what about phd let's talk about that I think that that one is I don't know anybody that doesn't that doesn't use it now or hasn't used it you know extensively uh how did that come to mind how did you come up with that
0: so PhD, PhD came about because um, the software out there to do guiding at the time sometimes worked, <laughs> um, oftentimes didn't, but then also just, I would go out and I'm pretty sure that the software isn't uh, around anymore. And actually when when it locked on, it would do a fine job. Uh, it was a software called GuideDog. It was a free software out at the time and and it could do a really nice job and everything for you. But the problem was that I would go, I would set up, and it seemed somehow as if every single time I went up, I had a slightly different configuration. I don't know. I was trying a different telescope. I was trying a different camera. Maybe I had put it through a diagonal this time, and I didn't another time just because of who knows what or whatever, but it would pop up this screen. And it's it's a classic like scientific software sort of screen. Here are 50 parameters. Please enter them. You know? <laughs> How many arc seconds, you know, of right ascension moves per millisecond of, you know, pulse width? I, I don't know. Right? Are you flipped north, south, or east? I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't I mean, want to know. I don't want to know. I should just be able to say, come on, just that star right there, that's a good one. Please go guide on it. <laughs> yeah. And there's no reason why you should ask me this. There shouldn't be 20 questions here. And yeah. whenever you'd get it wrong, of course, then it would... You know horribly guide and i'd spend all night trying to get that to work and i said okay this is this is ridiculous um maybe the high-end packages have cooler stuff or whatever but i can write something that's going to do a much better job because in in truth it's a trivial problem all we need to do in here is turn on the motor like right ascension for some amount of time and watch exactly where the star is moving so then you know if I have, say, 10 seconds total worth of motion and do it over a couple frames here so that you don't ever lose anything. But if I have, say, 10 seconds worth of motion in, in right ascension one way, I now know exactly the direction and the distance that the star moves when I have that amount of, of input. Dial it back. So you put the star back. Now let me go do you know declination here. Hey, look, there could be some backlash. So let's write a little quick thing to make sure we've picked up enough motion to say we're out of the backlash. Now go figure that one out. So after you have that, you have two vectors. And once you have those vectors, you can now take any tiny little bit of star motion. It doesn't matter how much you have here. And it's a simple mathematical thing. It's just a dot product. You're projecting then the current error onto those two vectors. And that's how much the star moved in right ascension and declination in milliseconds of motor time. And that's it. So I had all of these, initially I had all of these huge ideas as to what I was going to do with PhD and all sorts of really cool advanced algorithms in my head. So for example, with periodic error, you know, you should be able to, after you've guided for a little while, have a really good blueprint as to the periodic error of that bound so that on another night you could go and start guiding and inside of a couple minutes through this thing across correlation, it could figure out where it is in the PE curve and start applying all sorts of predictive motion saying hey here's a good prior i'm going to guess that the error is going to look like this here i had all of these neat ideas and everything and then some groups in australia had started taking you know some really inexpensive mounts uh you know some of the early things that turned into things like the atlas mount and this kind of thing and they started turning out images with like one arc second kind of resolution off of like alpha version 0.1 of phd without any of my fancy stuff and i was like Okay, I guess this idea works. Um, and you know, as I say, you you build in just a little bit in the way of heuristics. You know, you're not going to have to flip your declination, um, you know, really pretty much in the entire session, because the drift will only go in one direction. Uh, so you need to have a little bit of intelligence in there to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, I guessed you were going this way, but shoot, maybe that was just some you know some noise, some error, whatever, and be able to flip and have you go the other way. But in any case, you build up a couple algorithms, and the awesome thing was at the time there, you know, there wasn't a ton out there. I put it out there for free; it was always going to be free. And I start getting all these user reports and saying, "Hey, it's working phenomenally," or, "Oh, hey, wait a minute, here's the time where it messed up." I'm like, "Just give me the log file and let me see what happened." Oh, shoot, wait a minute, let me tweak the algorithm now. So we just iterated over, you know, over that with a bunch of users, and and it turned into well, what it is, what it is today, which, uh, I'm really, really proud of, of PhD and what it's done for, uh, for the community. What does PhD stand for? So it stands for push here, dummy. Um, but also, I mean, of course it was a little bit of a play because it's supposed to be push here, dummy, simple. And at the same time, it's supposed to be intelligent and okay. Right. You know, right, intelligent right. or well-educated, whichever you want to pick there. I'm a PhD. So, all right, there's the, uh, yeah, because they used to also call the, uh, you know, uh, inexpensive cameras that were sometimes called PhD cameras, push your dummy, you know, kind of simple. Yeah, yeah, it
2: uh, it definitely is that I like that when you open it up, it asks you about five very, very basic questions. I mean, when I say basic, it's just like, you know, are what are you connected to? What's your yeah. camera? You're like that. Exactly. Kind of stuff. Very, very simple. And then there's like two buttons. It's like run the exposure, click on a star guide. Yeah. And then there you go. <laughs> That's it that's it and and it just works i mean i I turn it on and then i just run it all night and leave it leave it running and it just does the job there's nothing to it and i really like that because you kind of want the software just to get out of the way exactly you know and this should not
0: be rocket science you know fundamentally there are some basic problems that are going on in this and if you just write the software knowing that those are the constraints you're up against and then take everything else away from from the user, you know, other, it's like, how much hysteresis is there? How much back, it doesn't matter. Backlash isn't a thing. Backlash should never be a thing. Stop asking me questions about it and how much of it I have, I don't know. So, right. yeah.
2: Yeah, it's pretty good stuff. You know, last time you were here, you were at the uh, the old building, old OPT. It's mm-hmm. actually, that was the first time we met, I think. You were just, you yeah. were in Chris Hindrin's office one day when I was walking through and I'm like, uh...
0: Who are you? Yeah, you guys were really, really <laughs> helpful. I was uh, at that time. I was trying to make sure that some of the uh, new Atic cameras were working really, re- really well on the Macs, and I didn't have one. And you know, you guys were like, "Yeah, sure, come on down. We'll set you up." Yeah. So I got to hang yeah. out at Chris's office for a while and code up, and it all worked really well.
2: Yeah, and it was fast. I remember Atic wasn't working that morning, and by like lunchtime, Atic yeah. was supported. Exactly. Yeah, it was supported so uh it, it's cool stuff and it was it was fun to watch that happen but um you were showing me a picture then that you had just taken of uh the horsehead and um and orion nebula in the same shot so yeah. it's was like super wide field is that the kind of stuff you like to shoot is just like really wide field stuff
0: i am such a sucker for the super wide field stuff um yeah, yeah. Is it so just i mean the i run it's the context it's the the big image and also frankly i mean look honestly it's easier (laughs) yeah (laughs) i suppose there's a bit of that as well and i mean you know we're both here on the coast and so being able to get those super crisp clear kind of skies that are also really stable to be able to do like yeah i'm gonna go at a half an arc second per pixel um you know the people who can pull it off have the skies for more power to them they can make some really really pretty shots but i love yeah that that context, the being able to sort of see it all. And, yeah. you know, things like the rose head, Yeah, zooming in on the horse head is cool. He's pretty and all, but, oh, wait a minute. Not only do you have that nebula and everything there, but, oh yeah, there's the whole Orion setup in the one shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, get backing out. The more you back out, the more context you really get. You see that the horse head's actually part of Orion's belt and then right exactly. next to it. Is the Orion. And so then when
0: you're actually out and you're out with, you know, friends, family, whatever kind of thing, you can then point and say, all right, yeah, so there's Orion. Maybe you know that. See that little kind of smudge you can kind of pick out there? Hey, right. that's the Orion Nebula. Exactly. All right. Then then they get to then see that picture with it all in there. It's like, oh wait, that's also up there. And, and it, I kind of feel if you can even see a little bit of of the constellation and everything in there, you know, in some ways almost so much the better
2: you just have a reference point. Like it gives you perspective of how huge this stuff all
0: is. exactly, And And that all of that is there for the seeing, you know, we have the light pollution where most of us live and all of that, but behind all of that kind of stuff, you know, you can show somebody, it's like, yeah, that's, that's all out there. And when we're thinking about whatever's going on in our daily life or, you know, the, nation or the world or whatever kind of thing. And these are obviously huge things. It's like, yeah, but there's also like a whole universe out there and maybe we could like figure something out about it or at least appreciate that. It's, it's a really cool, beautiful thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's well said. So this is um, I'm really surprised to hear that this was all born more of your, um, your science work and not just part of the hobby. You know, I would have never guessed that you had to stack images for brain scans or whatever type of, uh, images you were talking yeah. about. I mean, well, how can you do, I mean, I would imagine that those synapses
0: or whatever it is you're capturing, doesn't that happen so fast? How are you, how are you stacking images? So in a lot of this kind of thing here, there are a lot of different kinds of images and everything that, that we take. So what I do mostly, and you know, I stick you inside of an MRI scanner and I take a picture and that picture, we call them voxels instead of pixels because they're three-dimensional pixels. But each voxel, eh, it'll be anywhere from a half a millimeter or so on a side up to maybe two millimeters or so, you know, on a side, depending upon what we're doing here. Um, but the intensity in that in that voxel, sometimes it's to make a pretty picture and see the size and shape of different parts of your brain. Other times, it's there to do something like, you know index the amount of activity, how much the neurons are firing inside your brain. And the way we actually get at that, it turns out we use the amount of oxygen in the blood right there. Because as the neurons fire, they use up some oxygen. And then your blood system gives you a whole bunch of fresh oxygen. And we can actually image the amount of oxygen in the blood locally inside your brain. And that's actually what we're taking a look at. It's a kind of bizarre way of getting at it. But it's really nicely tied to how much the neurons are firing. So whenever you see pictures in the magazines, you'll see some brain with some blobs on it and they're like, oh, as you can tell, you know, X is, you know, different than Y in the brain. Neuroscientists have found it's from this kind of thing, but you know, people are people and you know, you're lying there for an hour as I'm taking all these pictures. Yeah. You're going to fidget. You're going to move around a little bit. And so it's just a three-dimensional version of the same problem that we face in astrophotography. And
2: so for you, it's about alignment more than it is boosting signal. Well,
0: that's, so you do the alignment so that you can boost the signal.
2: Okay, um, so we should talk about that. You're kind yeah. of the king of breaking down complex things, right? So let's talk about that for people that may not know. Like, why why stack images for space photography in
0: the first place? Yeah, so each time you take an image, you know, there there is some truth that actually should have happened. This little spot of that galaxy arm, uh, maybe you were supposed to get a uh, hundred photons in the minute or so from that little spot in that galaxy arm. That's the sort of truth with a big capital T. That's what should have happened. But every time you do it, you get a little different number. You know, so coming out of your camera, you know, let's pretend that you get every single photon that came in here, you know, it might be a hundred it might be 110 it might be 95 each time you're going to get something around that 100 but not quite that 100 that happens for a couple of reasons one sorry that's physics that's the way the photons work so we have this this noise this shot noise that it's just photons are probabilistic kind of things sometimes they uh, they come sometimes they don't and so in any given amount of time you're not going to really always have the exact same the exact same amount but then also your camera well every time you take a picture you've got that dark noise you know you've got that dark current those hot pixels and everything but it's not just the hot pixels everywhere in the image there's a thermal signal that your camera is picking up and that's some extra random bit who knows how much got added in there And then there's read noise. Every single time you just read off the CCD, again, there's just a little bit of variability that's tossed in there. But the cool thing is this variability is you can't know what happened on any given time. If you got a value of 110, you don't know if that's the truth or if the truth was 100 plus 10 or if the truth was 105 plus five, you don't know what that plus and minus was. But what you do know is that on average, well, sometimes you got a little more, but sometimes you got a little less. And so on average, you don't get any. So if uh, maybe you got 100 and 105 and 95 and 102 and 98 as your things, you average those together, you get 100. And that's then the point of stacking. That's how it makes that noise go away. Anything that's constant in the image, like that 100 offset from that bit of the galaxy arm, that constant bit is always there. And then the other bits are always just sort of bouncing up and down, back and forth a little bit. And the more you do, the more of those you get, the more you can make that little noise go away. So we stack to get that signal to noise up to be able to then see, hey, this little spot in the galaxy is 100. But right next to it, two pixels over, it's supposed to be at about 105. And a few pixels away, it's supposed to be 95. And so we stretch our images to make those little tiny differences huge that's how we pull out all of this cool stuff out of the image there so you darn well better actually have the hundred truth being really close to the hundred in your in your actual image
2: and so that's what you always see is signal to noise ratio yeah and and in that when you're defining those terms then in the simplest possible way you could say that signal is the truth as you put it of whatever it is you're shooting and the noise then would be anything else that ends up in the image Exactly. It could, it could be the thermal noise. It could be light pollution. It could be anything that's there mm-hmm. that isn't your
0: actual target. Exactly. And so, on that, I mean, for some things like the light pollution, sometimes people talk about that. It's an art look, it's an artifact no matter what, and it creates its own shot noise and all those kinds of things. So, yeah. And so, our goal is to try to get rid of all those other things and get good estimates of them, let them average themselves out, make them disappear so that you then get to see so think about this here for a second let's say you've got your 16 bit camera and so your values of that camera go from 0 to 65535 5, a big wide huge range and let's say that your noise coming out of there plus and minus 10 all right well if you then somehow took your nice fancy ccd camera with 16 bit range and you aimed it at you know a picture of your uh, you aimed it at your cat from really far away with your telescope or you just put a little uh, SLR lens on there or whatever. There's plenty of light. It's daytime. You take a really, really short exposure. You get a beautiful image. And the cat is sitting there at like 40,000 out of your 65, 535 units on there. So the cat is nice and bright, plus and minus 10. Kind of who cares? You know, it's 40,000 plus and minus 10. 10 is a little tiny, tiny rounding error. You're not going to notice it. Right. So when you're taking pictures with your phone or with your SLR and it's daytime and it's bright, you don't see the noise When do you see the noise? You see the noise when it's dark, you know, you're indoors You're in the bar or whatever you're trying to take the picture and it's out there at night and all of a sudden Yeah, your image kind of looks like crud and same of course thing here with you know your astrophotography shots because well, yeah, no, wait a minute. Out of 65,000, you've got a hundred of the thing you're trying to take the picture of. Now, a hundred plus and minus 10. Oh, wait a minute. That's 10%. That's now a big portion of it. And so it looks crummy. Thing that, by the way, that kills me about the stacking thing, just yeah. for like, you know, now um, all the, you know, the new phones, your new iPhones and your new, like, you know, Google phones and this kind of thing with like the nighttime mode. Yeah. Have you noticed that they uh-huh. swipe that from astrophotography? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, all they're doing is they're doing some quick registration on the image and stacking on the image in real time. That's exactly how they're doing all those shots. And it's it's awesome that stuff that we kind of figured out and all that sort of thing and really pioneered. Yep. All right. That's, that's what they're doing. And so
2: let me ask you, why, why are you drawn to simplicity? Obviously, you know, your day job forces you to do things at the most complex possible level and to kind of innovate on this. Why are you drawn to simplicity?
0: Well, you know, even in science, we have the notion of of Occam's razor, that if you have two accounts of something, two ideas as to how something may work, and they are doing really kind of equally as well, go with the simplest one. And that's probably going to be right. I, I tell people, and they never believe me, uh, but I tell people I'm actually a really pretty simple-minded guy, even in my science. Um... I'm always then looking to try to say as people come up with these incredibly convoluted solutions to to a problem or explanation as to what's going on in the brain and saying this is how it's happening and you know in some ways it's it's a little bit of a you know you can almost view it as as a curse or something like this but in some ways it's also the the blessing of it I was like well could it also just be this this one little simple thing. I like trying to trying to think of things that way. I like trying to understand things that way. And I hate making things needlessly complex. You know, yeah. when I'm trying to explain statistics, I was just doing this to a group of, of graduate students. I was trying to explain some stuff that people think of as really pretty complex statistics. You know, when we're analyzing these MRI images we have, we're doing this massive, you know, multi, uh, multiple regression with all these kinds of things in here and people, you could just sort of watch as you're describing this to them, their eyes are glazing over. They get over to so like a deer in the headlights kind of look of like, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to understand this. This is impossible. This is needlessly. This is incredibly complex. And I say, okay, wait a minute here. Do you remember back in high school? What's the formula for a line that Y equals MX plus B thing? Yeah. Okay. Everything that we're doing here this massive multivariate you know regression and all this kind of thing it's y equals mX plus b it's a simple line that's all it is we're just getting a little fancier as to what the line looks like and we're adding in multiple options for that line but it's the same exact thing so I've always been drawn to those kinds of ways of thinking because as I say i'm a I'm a simple-minded kind of guy
2: I love that. I, I love that idea. And I think it's needed more in astronomy, even the hobby side of it than anywhere else I've ever seen. And oh, yeah. you know, it's just, this can be as complex or as simplified as you want it to be. But I just feel like the success rate goes up so much when people start simply. And, and a lot of times when they stay there, because you can. this is a hobby can be done in very simple ways. And Be very effective. I mean, you can take phenomenal images without all of the headache, without all of the suffering. You know,
0: and so much of the time, all going for those added little extra bits doesn't matter. You know, people just end up not getting an image. Yeah, yeah, you don't get an image, or it's actually not any better. You know, I had somebody who was saying, "It's like, oh, look, you know, I took my." I took my flats and instead of averaging at 30,000 ADU or whatever somebody else had recommended to them so like halfway or whatever into the image. Uh, you know, they're at like 20,000 so I'm going to have to go and re- no you don't. You don't have to redo anything. It's fine. Yeah. Trust me. Everything you're you're worrying about picky little minor details that yeah. in the limit if you're tr- but no, I'm sorry. It's just not going to matter. Yeah, it doesn't.
2: And I just I don't know. I, it's funny because I don't think that people, people don't know. And and this will probably have a lot of people, you know, turn their nose up at me now, but I, um, I, so like, I go to star parties all the time just to try to support like some of the local clubs and do different Mm -hmm. things. And, and so I'll bring a system out there and people will always come up and want to talk about like the highest in gear and, you know, the, the, latest technique to get that last little piece of what you can out of the image. And then it always starts with, Hey man, I'm a huge fan of your Instagram. I love the photos you're taking. What are you doing about this? And I'm like, listen, I'm going to be honest. I don't even know if I'm pointed North right now. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like my guiding is doing all of the work. You know, I, I roughed everything I possibly could and skipped about 12 steps. I haven't shot a flat in my life, you know? So it's just, if it can be skipped, it's not a step. And a lot of this stuff, you know, trust the equipment, let the equipment do the heavy lifting for you and don't spend half your night getting a perfect polar alignment so that the other half of your night, you're not even able to get the image you came after in
0: the first place. It's like, Exactly. Go out there and have you fun. Know, go out there, have fun. And this is at its best technical art. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, it's, true. it's true. There are occasionally groups that yeah, you know, will go and then mine some of these, some of the raw images, not the processed images. The raw images, maybe okay, let's go. And occasionally, occasionally you have that happen. And it's it's the fantasy for a, a number of folks, the sort of dream that your image could be used to, hey, look, I detected a supernova or something like that. And, yeah. you know, honestly, if you made it a pretty picture with the supernova in it, even though it's not a perfectly linear kind of thing, great. It's a pretty picture and more people will then get drawn to it. But right. um, But this is art. And so if you then end up saying it's like, wow, my, you know, dark subtraction wasn't perfect. And I can see a couple of hot pixels. And you go into an editing program and you go, Boop, they're not there anymore. OK. <laughs> um yeah, so just make it work and don't overthink it cuz there is that analysis, is that paralysis by analysis kind of thing that'll happen to folks. It's so much better just to get out there and do it than it is to be stuck cuz I can't do all of this other stuff, I can't do anything. Right. Right? And that's
2: that's one thing I love about Narrowband is I just oh, God, feel yeah. like do you do a lot of narrowband? Is that, Oh, is that... yeah,
0: I love narrowband. I mean, look, again, yeah. look, we're both here in Southern California, and right. we've got like L.A. and San Diego on either side, and um, then you get the sea air, which is going to get lit up by the sky glow even more, and uh, yeah, yeah narrowband is awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah, most of the imaging I do is from the city. It's, you know, yeah. from the parking lot at OPT or, you know, just right sometimes downtown. I mean, we shot from Times Square, New York. Oh, and, wow. uh um, yeah, we, um, so I know you haven't, you haven't been able to do oh, yeah, much I saw that on your, I
0: haven't had a chance to uh, listen to it, but I saw that on your, uh, on your feed.
2: Yeah, it was, uh, it was wild, but we developed this filter. So it's basically the four, it's a four band filter. And I don't know if you've seen this yet, but have you seen the triad filter we have? No. So this is cool, man. It, it, talk about simplicity. So the idea was to bring, make color cameras relevant again, <gasps> you know, and so we've made one filter that has HA, S2, O3, and H-beta all on the same filter at four nanometer band passes.
0: Oh, my God. That is such Split. an awesome idea. Yeah. So,
2: you know, with the idea being, look, we know that you're giving up a lot of signal. We know there's a Bayer matrix on a color camera that's giving up even more. We understand yeah. that there are these problems, but you can do long exposures. You can yeah. do mini exposures. And so yeah. right out of the color camera, you're seeing narrowband images in color, which is crazy. Oh,
0: that is such... I'm looking at it right now. That is such an awesome idea.
2: Yeah. And the, the photos that people are taking are insane, man. Apod level images from like, you know, downtown Baltimore.
0: Because that's the thing, right? The, you, you're you going to be, you know, your target choices are going to cut down.
2: Yeah. Emission, Nebula.
0: Yeah. You're doing emission, Nebula exactly um but they're seriously pretty um my favorite shots that i've ever taken of of mine have all been narrowband shots and i love it then when people say it's like oh so did you go out to like the desert or something i'm like no this is in my backyard here in irvine yeah are you kidding me what it's like yeah 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 exactly so no i i absolutely love narrowband stuff and this is such a cool idea
2: yeah. We got to get you one out there to play with. I need to get one sent out to you so you can play with it. You'll have so much fun yeah. with it, man. You just throw a, you know, a mirrorless camera on the back or a DSLR, just a cool yeah. color camera and just crank exposures out. But then it's like, it changes your fishing experience to where, you know, once you throw that line out, you're seeing that data come back, but now it's in color.
0: Yeah. Right. And it's oh just Oh my fun. gosh. Yeah, exactly. Just being able to do it all at once. Have you tried using it just even on a mono camera as your luminance?
2: That's exactly what I'm using it for now. So I've got a big system out in uh, one of our observatories and it's exactly that idea. Like, why not, if you have RGB and then you put all those together and that gives you a luminance filter, Yeah. right? Then why not have HAS203 put yeah. all of those together and have a luminance narrowband filter? Exactly. So that's exactly what we're doing and it's it's nuts. I mean, even just the luminance shots, it's like you almost want to just post them in mono, just black and white. Oh
0: yeah. Because oh, God, I love those.
2: It's so much data, like just an absurd amount of data.
0: And uh, it's fun, man. It's a lot of fun. That's a really, really smart idea. I I love things like that. And again, it's really simple. And yet, yeah, it's a really simple idea, but oh my gosh, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. We'll
2: get you one sent out, man, so you can play with it. Cool. What what kind of equipment do you typically shoot when you shoot?
0: So... I've been using the same uh, Borg four hundred millimeter f four for years and years and years and years, and honestly, it's great. And this is another one of those. It's like, yeah, okay, there are stiffer, you know, setups and everything out there than the you know the focuser setup and everything I've got on it. And there are ones that are flatter for you know a larger sort of frame. I've got two different focal reducers for it. Yeah. Um, you know, they let me run one if I've got a bigger chip than uh, the QSI I normally run. Uh, but, you know, honestly, it's great. And over the kind of size and everything I'm working, and certainly when I'm doing narrow band, you know, um, in terms of just being able to have a, a nice focus without chromatic aberration kind of thing, yep. it's fantastic. And that 400 millimeter focal length is just a really, really, really nice spot for the kinds of things that that I like to shoot. Gives nice wide kind of views. And it's awesome.
2: Yeah, I always I always tell people when they ask about focal length, like where should I start? I always tell them four to six hundred. Yeah, start exactly. Start somewhere in there. That's gonna with most chips, you can frame out just about every target in the sky. Well, that isn't a tiny galaxy.
0: And now then, it's like as soon as you've made that as your starting point, your guiding, as you know, is then infinitely easier. Right. You know. Right. Seeing what's this thing that you call seeing? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you don't worry about it nearly so much because it's, it's right. Because you know, when I would do planetary work, which hasn't been much and I suck at it, but I still enjoy it a bit. Um, you know, you have to then not only wait, it not only has to have your schedule be clear and the night be clear, but now it also has to be still. And you're like, really? All right. Um, but yeah, as soon as you've then cut down and you're in that 400 to 600 range, all of those problems just get so much smaller and so much more manageable. So your odds right. of success are so much higher.
2: And the resolution on cameras now, the pixel sizes are going down True. on these CMOS exactly. chips. The resolution's going up. Just shoot wide
0: and crop. Exactly. Yeah. Shoot wide and so And so if crop. you then want to be able to zoom in and your guiding was spot on and the skies were nice and, you know, sharp and all that kind of thing. Great. Yeah you have that shot and otherwise you got a nice big wide view go for it Yeah,
2: and it, it doesn't it's not to say it eliminates the need for focal length when you're trying to do something specific especially oh, absolutely. science
0: look and if you you know and if your jam really is you want to go to those tiny little planetary nebulae and oh my god right. they're beautiful yeah, yeah absolutely i've known some just incredible astrophotographers who can pull that off beautifully great um but don't start there. <laughs> yeah.
2: Unless you just love punishment.
0: Exactly. You know. If you're really the masochist then great go for it. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> seriously start with, you know, get, go for Orion and actually getting a really good shot of Orion is is not easy because of the no. incredible dynamic range in there, but you'll get something.
2: Right. Yeah. I love that about some of these targets though. It's always the target you tell someone this is the easiest one, start here, like Orion. It's always yeah. where I start, people, because it's so bright. It's so you can do it the whole you thing. You can find and, it. <laughs> yeah, you can find it. Everything about it's easy. It's also probably the most challenging target in the sky to do well. Exactly, you know? exactly. And to get so, an
0: image, it's easy, but.
2: Right, yeah. And it, it's it's most of the targets that are easy are that way, like even Andromeda. Easy to yeah. find, huge. It's
0: what, like six full moons across oh, in the yeah, sky. but if you want a really good shot of that. Yeah. You're going to spend some time on it. You're going to spend some time. And that was kind of one of the things that, you know, I mean, I realized, I started to realize just how much data you need to then go and get a really good shot of it. Even when you've got, you know, a nice scope, even when you've got a nice camera and all that, I'm still using the QSI, you know, 500, uh, that I've had for a good number of years in part. It's like, that's, that's, it works. I know it, it works. I've got the guiding set up for it, just down pat, and yeah,
2: yeah. QSI just released their new uh, sixteen two hundred camera. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I just grabbed one. I haven't even had a chance to shoot it yet, but I was so excited to see the QSI stuff coming back because I exactly. love those cameras.
0: Exactly, and there are a bunch of really nice, you know, uh, setups and everything out there right now. I mean, I've got oh, a yeah. whole. Uh, I've got a whole garage full, almost it seems, of uh, cameras. Most of them decidedly older cameras and everything these days, but uh, um, you know to choose from. But man, yeah, no, I still definitely really like that uh, that QSI setup I've got.
2: And so you said uh, you said that guiding becomes easier at short focal length. I think that's something that you know. Uh, would probably be good to go into in these last few minutes here, if we could. But why it is that guiding becomes so critical at long focal length, and what's happening at shorter focal length that makes it so much easier?
0: Yeah. So the the big thing for people to then really sort of get in their heads, and I I don't I only try to dive into math when uh, sort of when okay. absolutely necessary. Here we go. But it's it's the easiest dive you could possibly sort of imagine here um, of just then being able to say, all right, you should figure out at some point here how much of the sky your camera is covering, the field of view there, and how much of the sky each little pixel is covering. So that's the number of arc seconds per pixel. Super, super simple. There are like easy little calculators out there on the web and everything that you can go, you can figure it out. Simple, simple equation. Some of the articles I'd posted up years ago, you know, take you through all of this and it's really easy. But once you have that number, maybe you're running, you know, at two arc seconds per pixel or something like that. All right. So what that then means is let's say that your guiding is pretty good. Well, actually let's say that your guiding is is good here and you're then at, you're able to keep the star almost all the time within an arc second or something like that. So then what that means is that the most that you're really ever moving here is a half of a pixel. One arc second worth of error, two arc seconds per pixel. We can do that math. So, all right, but now then let's go and let's take it so that your pixels are half an arc second oh, shoot, now, wait a minute. Now that one arc second worth of error is two pixels, two whole pixels, not a half a pixel. I can see that a lot better. And then you look at your images, you're like, oh, shoot, my stars are all oblong. And they look kind of crummy. Right. But now dial it the other way, even. Like if you run it four arc seconds a pixel. Well, now it's only a quarter of a pixel that my error is. Jeez, that sounds pretty awesome. That sounds brilliant. So the same quality of your guiding Went from, ah, crap, this is going to look like crud because all my stars are these oval blobs to they're perfect little round circles because it's a tiny fraction of it that my error is.
2: Yeah, so, the focal length is
0: so pulled back, you can't see it. It's hidden. Exactly. It's hidden. You've zoomed out on that kind of thing. And so it's hidden. It's hidden in the fact that your pixels, you know, they're not infinite, they're these little tiny squares. And so if you're moving just a tiny bit, but you're really staying with inside that pixel, you're not really going to ever notice that. And you're going to have a nice, pretty image. So, you know, if you can have it, and remember, it's not just guiding, it's the sky bouncing around. The sky's always bouncing around at the level of, you know, arc seconds kind of thing. And so, you know, uh, unless you have that, and this is another thing I know I was... I pushed for a a pretty heavily, you know, for a while there as to really kind of what you should be setting your sampling at on your, you know, on your camera. And that for mere mortals, um, you know, certainly going below an arc second is, uh, is, well, possibly a fool's kind of errand here. Sure. Yeah. Because it's like, look, you know, even if your guiding is perfect, you know, you're keeping that shutter open for a minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, the sky is bouncing around a whole bunch inside there. Right. Yeah, if you're at a perfect site and the skies are super still, awesome. Go for it. For the rest of us, that sky already gave that bouncing around and blur. Right.
2: Yeah, you're just introducing so many variables. It's just a...
0: Oh, my gosh, the wind blows. Right. <laughs> Literally, the wind blows. Oh, geez, yeah. okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's all it takes. It's all it takes. Or, you know, a kid jumping up and down 10 feet away. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anything,
0: anything there, can done change that. it. Exactly. Because, I mean... You know, when you really think about this, the resolution that we are running at is insane. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you say, okay, look, the sky is 360 degrees around. All right, an arc second here, one 3600th of a degree. Of one degree, and there are 360 of them. If you go around here, holy cow, that's tiny. Right. So, that's the resolution we're trying to get, you know, I don't know, 50 pounds of telescope and camera and gear or whatever to be moving at with that precision so that you don't have an error bigger than that within, you know, a 10 minute exposure. Seriously, seriously.
2: All and right. doing all that with a program called Push Here Dummy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I got one more thing for you. I always like to ask our guests, uh, when they come on, what, what got them into this hobby and what keeps them here? You know, whether it's the science side of it or just the philosophical side of the perspective, but what's, what's your story?
0: What got you here? So I started out on this. I was a kid and it's one of the classic kinds of things of it's, you know, it's the department store telescope, but my sister and I went out and we bought one. We were on a summer vacation and kind of bored, um, you know, we had a cabin in the woods for a couple weeks and we'd been there a bunch of times In any case, we went out we bought this super super cheap telescope it had a uh um you know one of these like 800x or whatever kind of thing so absolute <laughs> yeah. piece of crud and you would slide the eyepiece in and out It's basically like a built-in barlow and you could slide it out to then get more and more magnification nice. but it's like holy cow wait a minute you can actually see something of jupiter okay that's cool um and so then so after that i i wanted to try to see i mean you start like looking around and you're seeing all these incredible shots so i had you know pictures up on my wall as a kid where some people maybe had bands or whatever i had like hey there's the whirlpool galaxy yeah so i, I was a geek um so but think anyway, so back then i was doing i tried film astrophotography in my senior year of high school they had this whole deal where in the spring of your senior year they realized you were checked out anyway and if your grades were good and you could come up with a neat project you know Fine, do that instead of taking some classes. So I did a project in astrophotography. Um, and I, you know, I didn't have any guidance. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Getting things polar aligned was, an, I discovered an old telescope in my schools, like in a closet at the school, but I was even then physically stacking. So I would take pictures like of, of Andromeda on, on 35 millimeter film and in the dark room, just try to like line them up on top of each other perfectly to then go and physically stack them to, uh, uh, you know, get the actual print or whatever. Wow! So I got into it then. Um, but then things like, you know, I went to college, I was in like the Boston area. And so that, you know, isn't really great and you're in college. So that's going to be challenging. Um, and it, it had gone kind of dormant for a good long time. And then it was, as I mentioned that those long exposure webcams that got me to dust off the old telescope and, uh, and try things out. And then in terms of what, kind of keeps me here. I mean, it's a hobby I keep coming back to, you know, it'll go on hiatus for a little while, but I keep coming back to it. And I think it's for two reasons. One, it's the challenge, the challenge of trying to see, can I actually do that? Can I actually make a picture like that? And what can I see and, and what's out there? But then also it's creating something, you know, By day, it's like you are doing science, and science is long and slow and boring. I mean, you think processing astrophotography stuff is boring? (laughs) You ain't seen nothing in terms of how science moves. It's years and years and years to do anything. And then here, you know, it's using a lot of then the same technical kind of skills and ways of thinking and all of that. But at the end of the day, I have something that's that's objectively beautiful and pretty, and that can be understood from a scientific perspective if you want. In terms of, hey, you know what? That's an image of hydrogen and when i'm taking mri images of the brain i'm taking pictures of hydrogen it's the same darn thing it's just its resonant frequency in light versus its magnetic resonance kind of frequency here and you know you can think of it this way which is a really really cool way to think of it or you can just say like oh my god that's just beautiful and it's just a really really pretty shot right absolutely I
2: honestly don't think, and so I, I should thank you, and and I really appreciate you being on the uh, the oh, podcast today and communicating all this. But I should also thank you for um, for what your program has done for me. I honestly don't believe that without Nebulosity, I would have been nearly as interested in the hobby. The first thing I did was look for a simple way to do this because I'm not the guy that's going to go and spend half the night tinkering just to get set up so that I can shoot. I needed mm-hmm. a way to connect and get to the playing part of it. The fun. Exactly. And get to the fun. Nebu- Nebulosity did that. And it did that back when I was getting started before other things were doing that. And I can tell you, it's, it's what got... Uh, myself and jenny into the hobby and kept us here and i'm still using it now so i very much appreciate your philosophy and mindset on this and um, i hope it continues i hope that there's more stuff that comes out that continues to simplify it for people i think it makes it a lot more fun and it gets people more interested and successful in the hobby Ah, oh, well thank you well anyway i have taken up an hour of your time craig so wow. it is we, <laughs> that was yeah, quickly it, it did it did But um, yeah, thanks again for being on here. And I I know it'll be very helpful for people hearing about how this got started and what it all can do for people. So anyway, we'll talk again very soon. And um, thank you.
0: Thanks again for having me on.